It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from the hottest summer on record here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phil Isco. And with us today, we have a very special guest, very exciting guest, the inventor of podcasts, Karina Longworth. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. I, I, I mean, I say that half in jest, but you really are the inventor of podcasts. Oh my and the, god! And, and the and the best in the game. You must remember this. Um, you must remember Manson, um, the uh, incredible series you just did on Song of the South, um, incredibly relevant right now. Um, and, uh, I'm so happy to have you. Someone whose work, I actually take in everything she does. So um, incredible, literally incredible. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here, Karina. We really do appreciate it. And also I'm loving your, uh, your other podcast that you're doing right now that the, the movies got small. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. We're like, actually on hiatus on that one for a few weeks, but, um, I, you know, I have a new season of, you must remember this, that's coming out right now. Yes, on uh, Polly Platt, which is also yep. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, well, thank you again for being here and for talking to us uh, about Summer of Sam um, and Spike Lee and, and all of that. But I, I just want to rewind for a quick second just to ask you where you were in 1999. So I was in college in Chicago um, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And do you guys know, I don't remember what month this movie came out. So you got that? Uh, it was in July. It was a Fourth of July movie. Oh, then I was actually home in Los Angeles. <laughs> Hello, but I, 
I don't oh, yeah. remember the movie coming out at all. <laughs> can you guys still? Yeah, hear me? it didn't really make much of a uh, an impression at the time. Uh, yeah, we can hear you. Can you hear us? Yeah, sorry, there was just a pause, and I Hello? didn't know if you heard what I had just said. Yeah, um, sorry, there, Phil, there, there seems d- to be a, a little bit of yeah, a delay. Sorry, Phil, there might be a delay on your side because I'm hearing her. I think when she's talking, but um, I think you're behind. Um, okay, uh, I'll do. Is there anything I can do, Ernie, or are we just at the whims of the internet gods right now? Okay. Okay. I'll take a second. Um, yeah. So what I was saying is that it came out on uh, July 2nd, um, the, and it opened in eighth place behind Wild Wild West, Big Daddy, and Tarzan. So it was kind of uh, an odd <laughs> time for this film to be released, to say the least. Um, so you, were, you said you were in, uh, in Cal. Did you see this film in 99 by any chance? No, I don't remember it at all. Um, it just wasn't on my radar, which is weird because I had seen a lot of Spike Lee movies by then. I definitely knew who he was and I'd seen, you know, uh, you know, definitely do the right thing in Malcolm X. I'm not sure what else I had seen by that point, but, um, yeah, I think maybe that summer I like, that was sort of a summer where I was, I think more into music than movies. And when I was going to the movies, I was going to the new Beverly and to LACMA to see, you know, retrospective stuff. Yeah. Tough summer for music though. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of boy band, a lot of Britney. Oh, I was listening to like, I was listening to like Jade tree records, you know, I was listening to like just to Brazil and Joan of Arc. So, um, and I remember like, you know, going to, um, I, I don't even remember the name of it. It wasn't Lollapalooza. It was some other festival that was like a rock festival. And and I think like Beck and Sonic Youth played. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Beck put out Midnight Vultures. That's that. that year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, yeah. he was, yeah, he was doing stuff. But oh my goodness. The, uh, the, the Billboard Top 100 for the year is a graveyard of misbegotten, <laughs> <laughs> misbegotten Sonic Nightmares. Um, uh, just running down, running down, Mal- um, running mm-hmm. down Spike real fast. So you have in eighty ninety to do the right thing, and then uh, ninety two was Malcolm X. Then he did a bunch of movies um, back to back to back that some people really like: Crooklyn Clockers, Girl Six. I don't know how many people love Girl Six. Crooklyn and Clockers, <laughs> um, and and they get on the bus, which some people like as well. Um, that was 95, 94 to ninety six. Um, at at that period, he kind of went a little bit under the radar. Um, and if he had just stopped his career at that point, he still would have been one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. The year after he made uh, in ninety seven, he made Four Little Girls, which is a documentary about the. Uh, the church bombing. I think it was in Alabama or Arkansas. Um, and that was a, a kind of a huge movie. I believe he was nominated for best documentary for that. Then he got game, which was a bit of a, a hit. And then summer of Sam, which, you know, if you look at his um, filmography, part of the interesting, you know, the, the interesting story of summer of Sam was this, you know, all the other films he, he made, um, either had white, I'm sorry, black protagonist or black co-protagonist. You have movies like Jungle Fever and Do the Right Thing, which had prominent color um, characters of other races. Summer of Sam, there's almost not a black character in the movie outside of kind of Spike himself. So but is that, that one cop? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, yes, it's the the partner of uh, Anthony mm-hmm. Lapalia. Yeah, correct. And uh, so that was an unusual thing for Summer Sam that I think people glommed onto that year. And I think it was almost like a a sensory memory of Spike's time in the city. Um, and I think it was 1977 when this all mm-hmm. went down. So it was a bit of a departure for for Spike and for Spike's fans. Um, too bad it was, you know, this movie and it didn't really have the <laughs> But have I, the I think there was also sort of the – there was an element of controversy around the film too, which is that the, the family members of the victims didn't want essentially a movie made about, about this, you know, about the son of Sam. Um, so the script, if I'm not mistaken, was was much more about him and then it became – more about the area and and the Bronx and sort of this cross section of all these different cultures and this kind of dialed up hot summer and 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 sort of the fear that that came with uh, with the son of Sam. Um, it just it, it does feel like a project that that no one kind of enjoyed making. It seems like a lot of the actors uh, didn't get along. There was a lot of issues with that. I don't know if you read about that, Karina, or not. Um, no, I haven't. I haven't really read about that. I mean, I what I've read about is Michael Imperioli sort of, um, you know, instigating the project in, I guess, a slightly different form because he yeah. actually knew somebody like the Adrian Brody character. And it was sort of about his memories of growing up during that time. And then also Spike had kind of shot his first movie in the summer of 1977 on the streets during the blackout. Right. And it was sort of about the blackout and disco. And it was called Lost Hustle in Brooklyn. And I wish I could see it, but I can't find it. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it is this film. I've gone through sort of a, a real kind of ups and downs in this movie over the last couple of weeks as I watched the film and I did some research on it. And it does feel like there is this reevaluation going on of this movie, at least online, in terms of the fact that some people feel like it it's this sort of misbegotten or or this this forgotten masterpiece or didn't get the 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 you know credit that it deserved at the time. I'm not entirely in that camp, but I do think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this movie. I'm just not sure that it ever fully capitalizes on all of these elements. Yeah, I um, I think that there is a good movie inside of it. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, the first hour is the most boring. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like it takes a while it took me a while to kind of like hook into what I found interesting about it because it I'm certainly not interested in John Leguizamo's marital problems and um and so for me I feel like there is something really fascinating in this evocation of the summer and what it felt like um just to be so paranoid in the heat and um it's you know a kind of a different spin on on the summer that you see and do the right thing um and just this idea that, like, in that climate, you know, you have this punk rock friend and, like, you could become convinced that he is this murderer that's terrorizing the city. Um, and then, that you know, the sort of gay panic stuff is really fascinating, too. But, um, you know, it's sometimes it seems like Spike Lee's movies are sort of artificially long. And huh, yeah. um, this is one where it feels like, you know... Who far be it for me to tell him that he needs to focus on like maybe three ideas instead of six, <laughs> but I do feel like this movie just kind of takes a while to get to its good ideas. You know, the problem is Malcolm X is so fucking good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so after that, I think he I think he may have thought, I'll just do everything. I'll make every right. movie everything. 
and yeah. it'll be as good as Malcolm X. Because um, yeah, Malcolm X is like a three and a half hour perfect movie. It's it's so it's it's really kind of hard to hard to beat that. Um, I, but one, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, one thing I I, I wanted to kind of note about this movie is I think this would be an amazing project today after what we're experiencing right now because I couldn't help but see the parallels between the um, the citywide panic essentially you know citywide panic citywide curfew stay inside and what we're experiencing right now mm -hmm. um, this is essentially a pandemic movie right so there is this this ominous thing out in the city that could get you that could kill you stay inside be scared. Start trying to scapegoat. In our current environment, it's go online, go on to Reddit, see if anyone in your neighborhood has a history of this. I, I think, I hate think hate on that, people that wear masks right now. Hate I mean. on people. I, <laughs> I think that there is, um, I think that there are interesting parallels, and I think he is hitting on something in human nature that's kind of been you kind of metastasized into some really disgusting things that are happening right now. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting. I, I I don't disagree with that. I mean I I'll say that part of it too. Watching this film now through the lens of you know what we're going through, it it, it certainly did tap into stuff that um that I think at the time probably just didn't speak to people as, to the same degree. Perhaps I mean it, it's you know the, the movie has fifty one percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and sixty percent from audiences. I mean this movie was not embraced at the time. Um, you know a it lot also of people. Has a D minus yeah. cinema score, which is um, wow. very, very low. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's almost I mean, as bad a, as it gets. I mean, I think oftentimes critics like have either <laughs> yeah. misunderstood yeah. or not given Spike the benefit of the doubt at all. Sure. Um, but this, that cinema score is wild. Yeah. Why do you think that is, Karina? Why do you think that Spike has kind of been... Outside of the outside of the few obvious temples, do the right thing, and Malcolm X. Before this, I think uh, I think there was a bit of a a reassessment after I'd say twenty fifth hour. Um, mm -hmm. But before that, I agree with you. I feel like Spike's movies, particularly some of the like the masterpieces that don't get held up at masterpieces like Bamboozled and She's Got to Have It, um, weren't treated as such. So I, I wonder what you think. Well, I've actually been doing a lot of research about Spike because for this other project that I'm working on. And I think that She's Got to Have It actually did get pretty good critical reception. Um, what, you know, I think what's kind of started what I'm talking about is school days. Um, and what it seems like now is, you know, barely veiled racism in the reviews of of people being like, how dare this kid, you know, they call him a kid, you know, and the implication is black kid. Yeah. How dare this kid, you know, think he's Vincent Minnelli and think he's, you know, capable of, of doing, you know, this great storied Hollywood genre of the musical. And then I think that kind of, you know, spiral, that kind of element of the critical response kind of spirals into, you know, he's stepping out of his place, you know. So it's it's racism, I think. Um, but then maybe it just kind of gets codified into like, you know, sort of, you know, honestly, like what I was just saying of like, these movies are a little out of control, right? Like they're, right. they're um, you know, there's this sense of like, he he's he's trying to do too much and he's trying to um he's sort of asking too much of the audience 
I mean, the, the, it's it's interesting too because it feels like you know he, Spike just released a film on Netflix a couple of weeks ago called uh, The Five Bloods, which I, I quite liked and has been getting a lot of uh, critical acclaim for the most part. Um, but it is also a movie that feels like five movies or six movies even kind of jammed into one. But people seem to be giving him a lot of credit for that this time around, as opposed to in the past yeah. when it feels like he was lambasted for that. Well, I think sometimes it works better than other times. I really like The Five Bloods, too. And I think right. that the sort of journey aspect of that film gives it a container. Right. Um, and I feel the same way about School Days, to be honest. Like, I really love School Days. And I think that the fact that it's contained into a weekend allows him to to kind of do everything um, because you there's, you know, sort of a whisper of a structure there. Um and maybe the idea with Summer of Sam is that the the structure was going to be this summer leading up to Berkowitz getting arrested. Um, but for me, it it doesn't quite work in the same way. Yeah, it it, it really does. Um, I mean, that the I really think the pacing really hurts it. To your point earlier, Karina, like that that first forty five minutes to an hour is uh, it's a slog, you know, and 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 it. it the movie just doesn't need to be this long. Um, it, and it, it is a little bit unwieldy. Um, but I would also say too, I mean, not, not to, you know, there are a lot of good things about it as well. I mean, I think there are a lot of really strong performances in it. Um, I think he, it, it's, you know, he's very good at needle drops and, and the, the music cues and the, and the way he folds music into it, I think is really impressive. It's very well shot, but um, yeah, it's, it, it definitely feels uh, a little all over the place. I think so much of that has to do with uh, Leguizamo's character, though. Um, it's a very odd way into the story, in my yeah. opinion. Um, particularly, you know, considering particularly considering all the kind of interesting characters there and all the interesting characters in the city um, at any given time. You know, Jimmy Breslin comes on and says, "There's eight million stories in the city." And for the those of you those of you who don't know who Jimmy Breslin is, he's a old new york like newsman who is in this movie in the beginning and the end basically saying i love and hate new york in e equal measure um which is i yeah. think how all new yorkers feel about new york and he's the one who coined the phrase there are 18 million stories in the naked city well why like was Amos, is my question <laughs> like why this one who has such a kind of such a kind of rote story about you know yeah. the guy the guy who can't stop screwing around on his on his wife um and the guy who kind of turns to, you know, this lets paranoia and almost peer pressure take over him and, and turn against his best friend. I think we could have found a more interesting protagonist. Well, yeah, also yeah. just like, I, I don't even know that the problem is with the protagonist. The problem is just like kind of following him on this journey of infidelity. And, and you know, the, I think the Plato's retreat scene is so unnecessary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Mira Servino would agree with you. Uh, she 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 talked in the press about how she was not not a fan of uh, shooting that scene. Um, yeah, I mean it, it it sort of comes back to the the um, the repetition of his character as well. Uh, I feel like we hear him say the same things a lot. It feels like we just there just isn't a lot there, truthfully. Um, but I mean. I don't know. I mean, is 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 there is there something to be said for the fact that um, he, I don't know. Maybe he's just not that interesting a character. I, I'm not. I'm not sure that he is. Me neither. 
um i want to give a synopsis real quick for our listeners who maybe have not seen summer of sam uh during the summer of 1977 a killer known as the son of sam keeps all of new york on edge with a series of brutal murders the philandering Vinny, played by john leguizamo unwittingly almost becomes a victim of this of the psychopath and soon he and numerous people in his orbit including his wife diana played by mira servino his punk rock friend richie played by adrian brody and aspiring porn star ruby played by jennifer esposito are trying to figure out the identity of the killer before it's too late uh the movie was written by uh Victor Caliccio, Michael Imperioli, and Spike Lee. It was obviously directed by Spike Lee. Uh, it opened on, on January 2nd, 1999, 8th place behind Wawa West, Big Daddy, and Tarzan with $2 million. It would go on to make 19 on a $22 million budget. Um, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of, I know the touchstone was an imprint of Disney, and, and, and it's a little surprising um, that they thought this film was going to work in the summer. I mean, I get that it's got somewhere in the title, but I don't know. Well, Spike was a brand name, right? Spike did just do He Got Game. He Got Game was a pretty big hit. Um, You know, Spike. Yeah, it was like his first kind of big box office hit in a long time. So it's true. There might have been this sense that like Spike was back. I think there was. I think I think at this point to um, at least younger audiences. I remember I really loved everything Spike was doing at the time. Um, it was excited whenever he put out a movie. He re- it really felt like he kind of belonged to, uh, even though I think he's old, he's like sixty now. It really felt like he kind of belonged to our generation to some extent. So uh, this was a bit of a bummer. Like that's I, that, that that's really what it comes <laughs> down to for me. Like, yeah, this was a bit of a bummer in that you know with a Spike Lee movie, it, you expect it to be kind of bombastic and exciting and daring and edgy and going places you don't you, you don't see movies go before while also kind of learning something about the culture learning something about america like defy blood says that incredibly do the right thing does that incredibly malcolm x says that incredibly um and this just doesn't feel quite the same this feels down and dour and you know i do wonder because when you said earlier the original script focused more on the son of sam um defy bloods was written seven years ago by two white writers about five white characters and it seems like it wasn't all that different from triple frontier nothing against triple frontier but it feels like it wasn't all that (laughs) that different from you know a bunch of a bunch of uh former gis go to where they you know have some some treasure hidden and try to bring it home Um, Spike is the one who saw that this would be a far more interesting story telling it through the lens of five very different African-American characters. I do feel like that's a perspective I haven't seen and you get glimpses of it, right? You get glimpses of it here when there's the blackout and there's the riot in Harlem and the police are all over it. Meanwhile, in, you know, uh, I guess it's the Lower East Side where this takes place, um, the police are literally asking the criminals to solve the crime crime for them. The police are literally going to the mob bosses and being like, can you guys solve this for us? So I, there, there certainly is some elements of privilege and some elements of white supremacy being borne out in this script. But um, I think that there's a lot, I think that, I think there's a lot more to be mined there. Um, And I think we waste a lot of our time talking about uh, these characters who I, don't find particularly compelling. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't disagree. I'll, I'll say this though. I mean, I, I liked Richie and Ruby. Um, I, I thought that Adrian Brody and Jennifer Esposito were were more interesting characters. I thought they were portrayed, or at least their performances were were quite strong. Um, it certainly just felt a little bit more interesting to me. That whole punk rock um, sort of underground component um, was. I mean, yeah, I found I it interesting cool. and I thought yeah. it was well executed for the most part. It certainly was more interesting, certainly more interesting than, than Vinny's infidelity, which feels, as I said, repetitive. And, and we've been there before. We've seen that before. Although, um, I mean, I, I do want to say, just I very quickly I read. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry hey, I didn't realize you were still talking. Um, I don't know. I just I have. No, to no, no. Go ahead. Sorry, please. Yeah, I have to say that I think B.B. Newworth is like the MVP of this movie. She's the MVP of everything she's in. I was just going to say, she's, she's like, always the MVP. And her abs. She's so <laughs> ripped. Yeah. She's she's phenomenal. She's fantastic. I mean, it, it, bringing her up, I, I have to talk about very briefly, the, the apparently there was a lot of, Spike wanted a lot of improvisation going on in this film. He wanted to create sort of a, I guess, some sort of electric energy or what have you. And perhaps that's something that he does in his other films. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, when Vinny pours the coffee on her head, that was apparently improvised. Uh, when he spit at Mira Servino in their fight in the car, also improvised. Um, you know, it's it's it creates an energy to be sure. I'm, I'm not sure that I think it's the best energy to have on your set, but it does do something. <laughs> I love John Leguizamo as an actor. I hope this mm-hmm. doesn't sound like I hate him as an actor. I think he's he's one of my favorite actors. Um, <laughs> and, you know, his performance in Moulin Rouge is, like, one of my favorite performances. I think he's, like, beyond brilliant. So it's nothing against uh, Leguizamo. And I think that he's a good guy to give that kind of leeway to. I think that he, you know, is totally in control of what he's doing at all times. Um, again, I'm just not that much sh- – I'm not that sure that, you know, the the – skeleton this is all hanging off of is all that interesting right right i mean i i I, listen i'm not i'm not sitting here shitting on on john John leguizamo i i think that there's um there's something to be said for for the energy he brings to the character for sure and i i don't disagree that giving him some rope is is necessarily a bad thing i i just i mean listen i i don't know if i was an actor and uh he turned and spit on me during a take i'd be all that into it <laughs> but <laughs> that's just that's just but that's me. not yeah i don't know that that's specific to leguizamo i don't know that I, <laughs> exactly you know, necessarily want that especially now I, I'd, ho- I'd be okay hopefully nobody it. ever spits on anybody ever again <laughs> <laughs> um so i i just want to very quickly uh read a, a little bit of uh, roger ebert's review because he, he was he was a quite a big fan of this film and and i feel like he brings up some interesting ideas uh he gave it three and a half out of four stars he says summer of sam is the first film with no major african-american characters in a spike lee movie uh but it has themes familiar to blacks and other minorities scapegoating in the summer of 77 when new york city was gripped by paranoid fear of the serial killer who called himself the son of sam the residents of an italian-american neighborhood in the bronx are looking for a suspect anyone who stands out from the crowd is a candidate Lee's best films thrum with a wound-up energy, and Summer of Sam vibrates with guilt, fear, and lust. It's not about the killer, uh, but about his victims, not those he murdered, but those whose overheated imaginations bloomed into a lynch mob mentality. Summer of Sam is like a companion piece to Lee's Do the Right Thing. In a different neighborhood, in a different summer, the same process takes place. The neighborhood feels threatened and needs to protect its fear of an, on an outsider. It's often lamented that in modern city neighborhoods, people don't get to know their neighbors. That might be a blessing in disguise. Um, I mean, I, I think that there is something to be said for, um, 
the scapegoating and and the the cultural kind of Venn diagram that's going on in this film. Again, I'm not sure that it totally works, but I do think that I do think that it's interesting, and I do think that uh, especially now, uh, it, it's you know it feels very you know pertinent. It does. What do, you, <laughs> what, do, what do you think about the last line of that review? The la- the Phil, yeah. would you mind reading it again? Absolutely. Um, it's often lamented that in modern city neighborhoods, people don't get to know their neighbors. That may be a blessing in disguise. <laughs> I, that's pretty loaded. Uh, <laughs> it's very loaded. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty, pretty loaded button there, Raj. Um, uh, I, I, I think that's interesting, though, and I'm no, you know, no comment on the on the value of that statement. I think that's an interesting way to look at this versus do the right thing. Do the right thing obviously takes place in a very multicultural neighborhood. That's kind of the point of the movie. Um, this does make me think that Spike might be trying to say, all right, what happens if uh, if it's nothing but you know one race of people? What happens then when when put under pressure, when put the pressure cooker, the press, excuse me, the pressure cooker of a hundred degree days, the pressure cooker of a a madman on the loose? Um, where do you turn then? And uh, I think well, the answer. Yo, no, I think. Go ahead. I, the answer seems to be you find another, right? Even if right. you don't, even if it's not somebody who looks that. I mean, I guess, I guess one of the things they're sort of picking on Adrian Brody for is that he looks so quote unquote scary. Yeah. But you know, it's not that he's a different race. He grew up with the, them. You know, it's, um, it's just that he is he's the freak, you know, in the group. And yeah. so, I mean, I don't know if Spike is saying that's human nature or if that's white nature, but. Well, I, it's, it's Ricky's character, Adrian Brody. It's also the gay character that they go after first. Um, so yeah. it, I agree with you. I think you, I think it is a matter of looking at the other. And I think we've seen that before. I mean, this is, this is Lord of the Flies, right? They go right after Piggy cause he's fat and has asthma. Yeah. So um, I think, yeah, I, I think he, at the very least, he is saying it's white human nature. I um, I don't know. But, is it human nature or white human nature? You guys want to have that conversation? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll I'll say this. I I do feel like it's it really is anyone that is even remotely different or I mean even they got they attack Ruby. I mean because she's quote unquote promiscuous. I guess. I mean they they attack essentially anyone that doesn't fit a very rigid idea of. I don't know, a person, perhaps a white person. I'm not, I'm not sure. We see this in, uh, you know, a lot of depictions of Italian Americans, actually, you see it, um, up and down the Sopranos. Um, sure. You know, you see it, you know, you see it up and down the Godfather. You see it, you see it a lot. I think, and, and, and I, I, I don't know. Is that is that offensive? Is that real? Is that um, is that fair? Is that a fair thing to put on to this particular culture? Because I do think that I've seen it a lot with Italian Americans in a way that I you see it obviously with kind of your you know, your white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, your um, your Bible thumpers, mm-hmm. but um, that certainly feels like punching up in America. Is it the same thing here? I, I'm 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 genuinely trying to kind of dissect what what we're what we're discussing and and, and what is trying to be said here um, and and whether or not it's fair whether or not it's right whether or not we're comfortable with it um, I'm not sure I'm, I, I I'm not sure that the I mean I, I think part of the issue that we seem to be circling is that I'm I'm not sure that the film 
really does kind of lock into what it's trying to say. It, it does feel a little bit muddy and it, it does feel as though perhaps it's trying to say a lot of things and that's why some of the message gets, gets lost. Um, there's, I, I, I want to read a, a quick little thing from um, Little White Lies did a piece on uh, Summer of Sam, which I think speaks to what we're talking about a little bit and brings something else into it, which I think is interesting. Uh, basically, they say, how can, you not be, how can you not be cynical in a society that is so unfair? For all the attempts to control safety and comfort, the world doesn't offer much consolation. The systems in place, be it religion, the justice system, or democracy, are often the sources of deep anguish and suffering. Characters reaching for opportunities that can't get at collectively, traumatized not only by by Son of Sam, but by society itself. In a sense, this is Lee's obsession. Legacies of trauma passed down. Even if the status quo is often weaponized against the citizenry, for most, for uh, it is worth upholding as a way to maintain some semblance of self, often through violence and self-annihilation. Um... I, I think there's something there in terms of of Spike Lee's films often talking about trauma passed down. Do you do you see that, Karina? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for sure. But I also think that his movies are and one thing that's interesting about the fact that he's like now made two period pieces in a row is that he always seems to be really interested in evoking a present moment. Yeah. Um, and so it's. You know, I don't think that people are the characters are aware, you know, that they're victims of trauma being passed down. Um, They're sort of almost always hyper focused on what's happening right now or in their moment. Yeah. No, totally. I I also think, you know, something that that uh, this made me think of something to piggyback on what you're saying, Karina, about this. I I, I don't know that there's a filmmaker that uses. historical footage if you will better than spike lee does Mm -hmm. i mean he just completely understands how to hammer home something that's happening now by showing you something that's happened in the past you know obviously the idea of like we haven't learned anything and we're 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 unfortunately repeating the past constantly but he just he uses it so well i mean even honestly it works in this as well but yeah. I mean, obviously, vice I think versa the in the black case of uh, black. Sorry, go ahead. Black, black Klansman's vice versa, right? Black Klansman is is taking a period piece and then putting modern footage yeah. over that, and that's kind which of he thrilling did in, too. Which he did in Malcolm Correct. X as well with the yep. Rodney King footage. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. You know, I, um, yeah. He's, he's, yeah. Something that struck me uh, and that, 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 that I keep coming back to is this idea that the cops went to the mob for help to find this killer. 
and the kind of psychology of that and the psychology of, of who the cops respect, who the cops look to as someone who can help them police the neighborhood. And it kind of does speak to what you were talking about, that um, that excerpt you just pulled, Phil, the idea of violence, the idea of ruling yeah. through violence, of ruling through fear and violent people respecting violent people. And I think that, um, you know, I know this for, for a fact. I have a, a, a relative who's a police officer, and uh, there is a lot of coordination between police officers and gangs in inner cities, particularly right now. Um, and I think that that's kind of scary that, that the people who tend to have some respect from law officers from, from, um, law enforcement officers are the people who also rule with violence in their communities. So I think that there's something going on in, su- in summer, Sam, that, that speaks to that speaks to, okay, you're, you're just kind of taking one gun toting authority, replacing with another gun toting authority. Um, and these people are kind of talking to each other at a level that that average day citizens don't yeah. can't understand or they're not privy to. But then there's also it's almost like there's different um, tiers of that. You know, it kind of gets smaller and smaller. Like once you get down to like the guys sort of hanging out at the end of the street and like the guy who sells weed is sort of the leader of that team. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yep. It's it's yeah, it's it's a very i mean cliquey movie in the sense that people have these little sort of microcosms that they've created for themselves and and are very protective of them um it's you know i i i sort of what did karina what did you think of 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 the casting of some of the 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 actors in it did you feel like because there was a lot of kind of shifting going on with some of the roles diana was originally written for jennifer esposito and then she became ruby after sarah michelle geller passed on the it's just like result it, it it all kind of feels odd to me i don't know how you felt about it oh right there is that moment where sarah michelle geller was a thing uh, can you imagine if she had been in this movie and then cruel intentions right after that yeah. and then simply yeah. irresistible. Yeah. um so i i agree that I think that um, Adrian Brody and Jennifer Esposito are are kind of the most interesting main characters. Um, And I really like both of those performances. I was so happy to see Ben Gazzara show up. Mm -hmm. Um, He always makes everything better. Um, I don't totally buy Anthony LaPaglia's New York accent. Um, (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) Speak in my language. I went I went twenty minutes on Russell Crowe's American accent last episode. So wow. in the in the insider, yeah. Wow. I just I I just don't know about these Australians coming in and talking like a tough guy for New York. I don't know. But. Look, I'm just like I am somebody who's half English, and I am tired of pe- English people and Australian people taking American jobs. Yeah, um, and um, you know I can say that because I'm one of them. But um, oh, so I really just I'm so tired of British people being cast as yeah. non-British people. For me, the high point was Felicity Jones playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg because <laughs> I'm also half Jewish. So it's like, it's, you know, that's um, wow. it's not great. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what were you we talking about? Casting? The casting, yeah, 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 yeah. Just, I mean, yeah. I, I I thought that Mira Sorvino is, I mean, she's just not given really much to do. Like she really only has kind of two scenes where she kind of stands up for herself a little bit. Yeah, um, and there's a lot of sort of unmodulated yelling. Um, <laughs> yes. But, you know, I think that 
it it's still still even though I don't think it's like a particularly nuanced performance, you still watch it and you're like, huh, she stopped working at some point. Why was that? Oh yeah, yeah Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. So it does feel like it does remind you that there is a loss there. Well, Mira Servino totally. just had had this the pre Harvey Weinstein revelations. Mira Servino kind of had this Marissa Tomei esque. She won an Oscar by accident, and she's not actually good narrative. And that only mm. seems to fall on actresses, not you know female actors, not male actors. Um, and honestly, now I think people of- say that about Adrian Brody. It, it might be true about him, but no, that's kind of true. That's kind of true. Yeah. Well, you know, Adrian Brody, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to put a pin in Adrian Brody for a second, but I do think that you're completely right <laughs> that, um, that I, I think Mira Servino is actually, you know, very clearly a very talented actress. She does. You take, you take mighty Aphrodite, Romy, Michelle, this, she's doing three completely different things. I I actually found her really compelling in this movie. Um, I really like the relationship with yeah. her and, and Leguizamo. I love the scene in the car when she, you know, when, when they're basically kicking each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a great I scene. thought it was really great. And I do feel like we, we have, we really did lose something. We, we lost 15 years of her life because she was blacklisted by a rapist. So yeah, the Adrian Brody thing, <laughs> I, Adrian Brody did something really weird at the Oscars. You guys remember when he kissed her? <laughs> Come when on. he kissed Halle Berry? Yeah. 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 Come yeah. on, man. You don't get to just go up and kiss people. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. He, that, I mean, that, that, it, it's, you, know, you don't want to judge someone based on one moment or their worst moment, but that speaks to something that you kind of get through his characters. Um, I think often, not you know, the, the pianist notwithstanding, and also weird movie to win an Oscar for. But... Um, True, yeah, uh, but but it does speak to something uh, about his characters, which is I, I do feel a sense of entitlement um, coming out of him mm-hmm. that undercuts this performance a little bit for me. Like I couldn't, I didn't love his performance as Ricky because I can't get Adrian Brody, privileged guy, out of my head. I think that there's a a darker, nastier, more lived in performance here um that that could have been delivered by um by someone else so well it's it's interesting because in some of the reading uh apparently leonardo DiCaprio was circling the role at one point uh in his sort of post titanic wanting to shake things up like he almost was an american psycho it was clear that he just wanted to get out of the sort of teen heartthrob and ended up doing everyone's favorite movie the beach but um he i don't know that he would have been right for this but it's interesting to think about. I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting role. I don't disagree with you, Kenny. I think that Adrian Brody is, um, I think he's good in the movie, but I never forgot it was Adrian Brody, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I mean, I think the thing about Adrian Brody is he's actually a leading man, but because he has a big nose, like people try to cast him as, you know, sort of yeah. the secondary character or the anti-hero or the antagonist. And so he plays this role like he's the protagonist, but the actual protagonist of the movie, I think, is supposed to be Leguizamo. Yep. And so it it the you know ne- yeah you never really you it it undercuts the paranoia of the other characters because you don't believe that he's son of Sam. You know, you don't believe that he has that in him at all. Totally, I completely agree. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, it's yeah. Speaking of his nose, it was apparently broken during the final climactic scene too. Just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, also John Turturro apparently is the voice of the dog. Just Amazing. FYI. Favorite scene in the movie. I mean, besides for any scene involving BB Newworth. <laughs> so the funny ahead, thing Katie. is, all, all of a sudden, Sam stuff really worked well for me. <laughs> Only, who's the actor from um from the wild, yeah. from uh the practice who plays him? Balducci is that his name? Balducci. Balducci. Yeah, yeah, I love him in the practice. But uh, yeah. yeah, all that stuff really kind of worked well for me. I think that is kind of what um what's his name, David uh, Berkowitz, actually kind of felt like, and actually kind of he didn't really look like him, but kind of had the same yeah. kind of vibe. <clears throat> So, but wait, can I? I'm sorry, we we breezed past this, but did you guys like the dog scene? Did the dog scene work I for you guys? It. Okay. I loved it. Okay. Oh my god, I didn't really like this the you know the Berkowitz layer stuff at all. Like, but all I right, really right. you know when the, the when the dog starts talking, <laughs> it takes a movie to this level of lunacy that I can really get into because I think a lot of the movie feels a little too self serious. Right. Right. Um. But when you bring in, you know, the delusion of a talking dog, that <laughs> that really worked for me. Because I'll, that's I'll like this. on the same uh, level I did. Yes, yeah, so like play. The, Sorry, Karine. That's kind of on the same level for me as like the fight when in the car. You know, like there's kind of just like a level of sort of like heightened, um, you know, nuttiness that I think the movie kind of needs more of if it's going to be about people going crazy in 105 degree heat with a killer around. You know, there's something kind of. I agree with you. There's something. I could. Like, I completely agree with that. Yeah. There's something kind of sneakily hilarious about the dog scene, and I like all the Son of Sam stuff because it speaks to the the razor's edge society sits on. That one lunatic's tearing down the walls of his apartment, hearing the voice of a dog, can totally destroy a city for a period of time. You know what I mean? Like, they, it's we're so close to mayhem at all moments. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I guess I just there's. So I did see this in the theater, and I remember the dog scene vividly because a lot of people laughed in the theater. Um, and and I think part of it is, and this isn't to say that the scene doesn't. It is funny. It is funny. Um, it's not to say that it doesn't work, but it does feel, to your point, Karina, like I wish there was more of that in the film. I think the audience was jarred by it, is I guess what I'm getting at, because it felt mm. so kind of from a different movie. Right. Um, you know, this this also uh, brings me to sort of a question I have for you, Karina, about uh, about film stocks and about like the arbitrary, sometimes arbitrary choices that, that, that Spike seems to have sometimes in terms of changing film stocks or saturation levels or what have you. Um, it does seem like he uses it pretty liberally in the, the son of Sam stuff to sort of make it stand out. But then there's also times where like Vinny and Donna are dancing by themselves and all of a sudden it just changes film stocks. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, first of all, I think this movie looks great. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, cinematographer Ellen Curris did a, an awesome job, especially in the scenes where it seems like what Lee is trying to do is pay homage to Scorsese. You know, I mean, I yeah. think there's a lot of sort of ersatz Scorsese in this. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that's been interesting in doing research about Spike is that it seems like he felt like there was a double standard you know, between him and a lot of white directors, but he cites 
Oliver Stone a lot in interviews. Like Oliver Stone got this much money to make JFK mm. and I only got this much to make Malcolm X. And then there's a period where he's like, you know, I can cha- I can mix up film stocks and and <laughs> you know, I can have a movie have three different distinct looks like if Oliver Stone can, you know, like you guys right. don't you guys don't criticize him for doing that. You criticize me for doing it. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I can absolutely see that. And, and you know, we, we, we talked about Any Given Sunday because that was a 99 movie. Um, a, a, a Oliver Stone movie dialed up to 11 for sure. Um, but... Which I love and think is a brilliant masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on uh, Any Given Sunday, Karina? I haven't seen it. I'm oh. actually, like, not really an Oliver Stone completist because I just always, I don't know, when I, I you know, Growing up in the 90s, I was like, that guy, really? Um, sure. I had like kind of an allergic reaction to his personality. Yeah. And then I haven't really gone back. Um, but I, he's one of those people where I feel like at some point I will just spend a summer watching Oliver Stone movies, whether I like it or not. <laughs> that sounds like a sociological experiment, but sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that I've I've not seen all of his films. I think I've probably seen about half of them, maybe two-thirds of them. But, but that's a really interesting... Uh, connection because I do feel like Spike at times I, I don't mean to say it's arbitrary I'm sure it's thoughtful in the way that he uses these things and I'm sure that it has a point um, but sometimes it just feels like this will look cool <laughs> mm. which which I mean is is in of itself I guess not necessarily a bad thing the film does look beautiful it does have a lot of sort of uh, Robert Richardson hot hot lighting and and various sort of things that that have been attributed to, to Scorsese over the last 20 years or so but um, did you, I mean, overall, did you like the style of it? Did you feel like the music worked? I thought that some of the music cues were pretty great, but I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah, I definitely did. And I, um, I watched Crooklyn for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And mm-hmm. I think Crooklyn's a movie that, you know, for the first 45 minutes, I was like, is this a soundtrack in search of a movie? And then I kind of realized the extent to which Spike was often using these super classic needle drops ironically right and i think he does the same thing here definitely. really effectively definitely he's doing it in defy bloods too it's uh mm-hmm. and i think he does it in black Klansman as well it, it's kind of a hallmark of of spike um repurposing music that has been repurposed by the by white culture i think that's an interesting kind of comment and i actually really like the punk rock song I love my late term abortion. <laughs> you like I their band? That, I cannot believe that band is called late term abortion. I love it. They he really did nail that. Like that. Was, <laughs> I'm 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 yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually like super into uh, depictions of like late seventies, early eighties New York punk rock. I don't think it gets depicted nearly enough, and I find them always kind of viscerally thrilling to be in that world. Um, particularly the CBG. Just like in uh, in uh, 200 Cigarettes? You didn't think that was a, a great... <laughs> no, I loved it in 200 Cigarettes. I feel like I... Would... <laughs> is that an 1999 I thought that movie? was great. I was, I, it one? is. It is. We, we have we, done that one, yeah. We did We did that one twice. <laughs> well, <'cause, laughs> wow. well, we did it twice because we got Betsy Beers to come on, who produced it, so she came on to talk uh-huh. about it. So that was... We felt like, you know... But uh, it is a 99 movie. Um, I, I want to just quickly um, talk about... Because it, it's... We've we've hit a lot of the plot, but but one thing that I do think is worth noting is Vinny almost dying. 
um, early, early in the film. Uh, unbeknownst to him, he's basically almost killed by, by the son of Sam. And it gives him sort of this existential crisis that he's going through for the rest of the film. Um, but it, it, it starts in an interesting place for Vinny. It just gets a little bit repetitive. But I do feel like the the killings in in this film are are quite graphic. Um, and and I don't know that it's are they effective, I guess is sort of what I'm getting at. Like I think about a film like Zodiac, which Yeah, they're all uh, dead. <laughs> no, I understand that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Kenny. Um I <laughs> You're welcome. I, I appreciate that. I guess what I mean is, uh, and it's maybe it's unfair. I mean, it is unfair to compare this film to Zodiac, which I think is a, a vastly superior film. But um, there, there is sort of this uh, theatricality to the way that these people are killed that I do wonder whether or not is doing the film a disservice. That's how they were killed. I don't know about that. Okay. I, that, all right, so uh, just to, to bring up a, yes. a, a less lauded serial killer movie that I quite like copycat um it was copycat yeah i don't know if you uh-huh. remember what copycat's about but copycat came out right around the same year as uh i think it was either the same year or a year after seven and yeah. i was very young i was in my early teens and everything that i knew about serial killers from that point uh up to that point came from seven and copycat so what was so startling about copycat if you remember the film can was you it, please say copycat more, please? You're I not saying I, copycat enough. I'm I'm ninety nine percent sure we've done this bit before where I go then I go copycat, copycat, yeah, copycat, copycat. We we have. We really have. Yeah. So the thing that I like about copycat is <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a like a terrible feline superhero. Yeah. Um yeah, sure. it, is that he goes he, he goes it's a terrible movie. The killer uh copies serial killer styles. And most of the serial killers have different styles. Part of being a serial killer is generally there's a sexual component to it. So it's usually very intimate strangling or, or um, stabbing or things like that. The Son of Sam killings were really not intimate. They were really not sexual. They were really kind of gross and, and graphic and gruesome like this. It was knock, knock, blow your head off. And right. that is, to me, very effective from a, from a serial killer because there's something about serial killers – that makes you feel like you can get away. If you pick up on what they're doing, if you pick up on on who they are and where they try to lure you in, and you can fight them off. I mean, we saw this in that uh, the movie, The Bone Collector. Um, you can fight them off usually because they're usually trying to kill to kill you with their hands. But the knock knock, blow your head off at a gas station is scary as shit. That's I didn't uh, mean to suggest that it's not scary. I guess my question was more sort of about and this is maybe a bigger question in terms of when you make a movie about a serial killer, are you aggrandizing them? Are you are you making them, quote unquote, I don't want to say seem cool because I don't think that's what this film is doing. But is there is there some legitimacy to the idea of us not putting this stuff on film? I mean, Karina, you've obviously I mean, do you feel like there's a connection there? Do you feel like that those that that's valid or should films not be you know should they be allowed to depict however they want to depict these things yeah i think i think it has to be up to the filmmaker i don't think there should be any hard and fast rules um it sort of depends on what you're you know as a filmmaker what you're more interested in are you interested in the gore um do you think that it's in 
I'm sorry that my doorbell's ringing. Somebody else will get that. Um, do you think that what's <laughs> no important reason. is the gore or is what's – like, is it – do you feel like the viewer needs to see how brutal these murders are in order to understand the paranoia? Um, you know, or, you know, another right. filmmaker might have decided that the murders, you know, you don't see them and that makes them scarier. I don't know. Um I didn't have a problem with the way that they were depicted in this film. I did feel like, I mean, we, we already talked about it, but I did feel like the Berkowitz and his lair stuff was kind of excessive. And, and once I had seen that twice, I didn't really need to see it again. Phil, speaking to what you're, what you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, the famous son of Sam case, some right. of his murder cases was that he was going to write a, a tell all a memoir. And he was going to profit from it. I believe he may have actually written it and profited from it. And the families of the deceased sued him, and you can't do that anymore. So right. there is certainly an element of at least the, you know the state of New York decided there is a point where it's too far, right? There is a point where you where 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 the person who committed the murders can no longer profit off of those murders. Um, Phil, we have these conversations all the time. You and we I do. <laughs> about about what to show and what not to show what um kind of is is responsible and what's yeah. irresponsible and i do wonder you know is there a line for you karina um is there is do you kind of back to phil's original question how do you feel about serial killer movies in general do you feel um and any any way whatsoever i don't want to lead you because i have i have my my take and I don't want to put you down that road, but um, I mean, do you mean specifically about real ser- serial killers, or? Uh, well, there are two questions, right? One is real ser- serial killers, if real crime should be depicted. Another one is just kind of violence in general, um, gruesome violence in general. Is there a point where it does more harm than good? I'm sorry. One second, I have to respond to a text because the guy who's supposed to fix the internet is here. Okay, no worries. Of course. Um. She's okay. gonna she's gonna settle this argument once and for all, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> the suspense is killing me. You, you should you should know the last time we had this argument, it, it ended with we have to agree to disagree. I love you. <laughs> that's how I mean, that's I, how most of our arguments end, by the way. I don't know that I should even really say anything because I don't think I've thought at, about serial killer movies at all in my life. Okay. You fair guys enough. obviously have. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> It's actually so, it's actually not serial killer movies that we're talking about. In yeah. general, it's it's the idea of gun violence we've talked about a lot. Right. And now it's uh it's been the depiction of police because that's very much in the news. Um You know, I mean, I just I don't think that I personally believe that there should be any rules about what you can and can't show. I mean, hopefully the project will kind of dictate what people need to see and what they don't. Um you know, I can't I can't recall a movie that I saw where I felt like the violence was gratuitous and maybe I'm just like desensitized, but um yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. Well there you go. You 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 win, Kenny. <laughs> Karina, you were the deal breaker, so congratulations. <laughs> Uh, yeah, best. I mean, j- j- just to be clear, I'm not I'm not f- pro censorship. Just for our listeners, like I'm, as as I'm sure they've heard Kenny and I talk about this in the past, but I I, I do. This is a good way to kind of pivot to to a- another thing that does feel like um, oddly gets censored, perhaps more in this country than violence, which is sex, and that this is a a, 
a pretty sexual movie. I would I would argue it might be one of Spike Lee's most overtly sexual films. Um, you know how how did you how did you feel about that, Karina? Did you think that it was effective? Did you think that it added to it? I'm I'm not convinced it totally did, but that's just me. Well, there's a lot of sex in it, but I don't think it's sexy. Um, I agree with that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that Spike has directed some sexy stuff in the past. I mean, I, I think that some of the sex in She's Gotta Have It is sexy. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I felt like, as I've said, you know, I think that the this whole thing of the John Leguizamo character, like, not being able to control his libido is not interesting and it it doesn't feel like it feeds the story in any real way other than, you know, creating this sort of drama between him and the Mira Servino character. And so I think that the, uh, I personally think the Plato's retreat scene is just kind of gross. (laughs) Like it, um, and, uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, maybe you have to see what you see in order for that fight afterwards to work. Um, but the you know this the scene where you know she wears the wig and he calls her sherry um that is you know really hard to watch um so yeah i don't know i mean i think that there's a lot of sex in this movie and it, its purpose is not to titillate um so i i fully agree i think it's also interesting that um that on the the Richie and ruby side of things these two people are unbelievably open about sex and, and, and there's something actually really beautiful about their relationship. The, the, the whole kind of, I don't want to say warts and all, but just this idea of embracing someone for all of their, their faults and their flaws. Um, and I, I actually really appreciated that depiction of sex, this sort of the, the healthiness of it um, to a certain degree. I mean, I don't know about Richie being a prostitute, but uh but I do think that there's there's something really interesting about the the yin and yang of those two love stories next to each other and what what they say about sex. I mean, I kind of wish that there was more of the of the Richie and Ruby stuff because yeah. I feel like I feel like Spike is almost being a little too like at arm's length about the actual whatever is actually going on between them. It, it's a little too ambiguous for me. Um, and I just I find it so much more interesting than like this guy who can't stop like having sex that <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> that I um, I just wish that it was given as much screen time, you know, because it's like he's I guess he's bisexual. Um, but I don't yeah. think that the film like really deals with what his sex life with Ruby ultimately is. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, you know, there there are a few things that that strike me about the depiction of sex in these two couples. I mean, one, the, the, the depiction of Ricky and Ruby as being functional is interesting to me when given their status as outsiders. There's this idea that they're each other's port in the storm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it does kind of say something to me about the nature of, or at least maybe Spike's uh, perception of the nature of romance, the nature of romantic love. Which is a lot of it has to do with um, the situation you're in, and I think uh, that you know if you if you kind of extrapolate that to the the Vinny and what what was Mira's character's name, Diana, yeah, the Vinny and Diana relationship. Well, there's a very clear power imbalance in that relationship. Um, you know, there's there's your typical kind of male privilege power relation power imbalance. Um, 
and the fact that he's like a good looking guy who is kind of wanted by a lot of women in the neighborhood. And uh, given that opportunity, he takes it. Now, I, you know, we, we've said it over the course of this podcast. I think that story so oft, often told, it's kind of boring at this point. Mm-hmm. I do wonder, like, there might be a, there, there might have been an opportunity missed if he just kind of was obsessed with BB Newworth. Um, <laughs> I think like at least that would be like, all right, I I could see why you're not going all in on this. I can see why you're obsessed. I could, I, you know, like I could like that, that, that in and of itself is, is kind of weirdly interesting. And that's also a relationship that doesn't feel like he's just, you know, screwing some girl in the front seat of his car, which is how the other ones feel. Yeah. Um, that feels, you know, a little more equitable in the power dynamic. So yeah, I, I wonder if that I wonder how much of that has to do with it, you know, kind of this comment on male supremacy, power imbalance in relationships and this idea of port of the port of the storm when you're, you know, outsiders. I think there's absolutely something to that. I, I also think that there's a I quite liked the scene between Diana and Ruby in the bathroom when they were talking about Vinny's sexual preferences and and I think Mira Servino is really great in that scene and it felt pretty genuine to me. Did you, what did you think of that scene, Karina? If you, yeah, I really liked that scene too. Um, and I don't know, I think I had kind of like, you know, missed, mm-hmm. uh, if, if they had talked before about how, um, Ruby had been involved with Vinny, I had missed that until that scene. And so, um, I found it to be, an interesting way of not just like kind of dealing with a plot problem, but advancing both of those characters. I, I, I absolutely agree. I, I, and I, I don't think they have any other scenes together. Um, I kind of wish there were more of them. Uh, it really, I don't know. I thought it really illustrated just two very different people dealing with a similar situation. I mean, in terms of like how they both dealt with Vinny, I thought was interesting. Um he- yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, it seems like this uh, is a very male yeah, sorry, world. Ahead, it, fe- it seems like this is a very male world yeah. in which, you know, most women seem to be defined by the relationships with men. And so it's not like this scene, you know, breaks from that, but it does at least like have a, a, a sense of like women being able to turn to one another, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that the, the it is a very masculine movie um and i don't know that that's necessarily um a great thing but i I do like the fact that i mean it does seem like it's a condemnation of Vinny. like i don't think that this film is propping Vinny up as a good person or as a person that i do think that they are kind of tearing him apart um so it does feel as though there's a commentary on to some degree on toxic masculinity within it um but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, the, the the film sort of, I mean, there's just there's there's really not a ton of plot to this film, despite its two and a half hour running time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like not a ton happens, but um, the film does sort of barrel towards a climax uh, in the sense of um, Vinny and, and Deanna break up, and Vinny kind of goes down this uh, downward spiral of drugs and paranoia and what have you, and his friends, quote unquote, uh, essentially sort of incept him to believe that Vinny is, uh, I'm sorry, that Richie is the son of Sam, um, which leads him to sort of luring uh, Richie out into the street so these guys can you know, beat the hell out of him, basically. Um, which it, it does, I mean, it does feel like a similar, 
situation to the end of of uh, um, do the right thing in terms of a of an act of violence that sort of brings a community together in a way. I, I don't know if you if you felt that way or not, Karina. I don't know. I actually I wouldn't say that I felt like it brought the community together. I feel like one of the things that's so sort of weird about that whole last sequence is that. These guys, for whatever reason, are the only people around who haven't been listening to the radio or watching TV that night. Right. And so they're just like the only people who know who don't know that the actual son of Sam has been captured. And I mean, it I don't know. It feels like a real plot contrivance. Yeah, we could have done better. Yeah, I, 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 I don't disagree. Um, th- that being said, I do think that this kind of crescendo of the film with this montage to I believe it's the who um, yeah. with. The, oh yeah, I mean it's great. It's great. It's 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 really something. Uh, yeah, I mean it 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 almost makes the two and a half hours that preceded it uh, worthwhile to a certain degree. Like you just find yourself being like, well, if only the the film could feel like this all the time. I mean, I think the whole movie is pretty great from the blackout on. Yeah, um, it's just getting to the blackout. I I kind of loved the end, even yeah. with the plot contrivance of it. And it kind of saved the movie to me. I mean, it reminds me of the end of a movie that's nothing like this. Um, but have you guys seen The Mist? <laughs> no. I have not. I haven't either. God. Just watch it for the end. It's such a bad movie. But the end is so good. <laughs> but basically, like, the, I just think there's something kind of beautiful and poetic about the moment John Leguizamo or Vinny sells his soul. Three seconds later, they're like, you know, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's like there's you. You can't put that genie back into the bottle after you've sold your soul. But like he was so close to doing the right thing. <laughs> so that yeah. that like the the look on his face at the end, um, the look Ricky give Rick the good look R- Ricky gives him. It's Richie. I can't remember. It's uh, Richie. The look Richie gives him. It's it's amazing I, I i i went from kind of being lukewarm on this movie to being quite positive because of that last moment um it was a shock to me so yeah the, the movie ends strong like i i you know to, to karina's point i do feel like the last you know i don't know probably 45 minutes maybe a half hour of the movie are, are are quite strong um and this last sequence really does end on a on a powerful i don't want to say exciting but it certainly is um, you know, a, a, a powerful way to end the film. Um, I just feel like it, honestly, if he had just trimmed like 20 minutes, maybe a half hour out of the movie, I think there's a, I think there's a good movie here. Um, it just, it just feels as though it, it kind of gets lost in its own ideas a little bit. So ultimately you think this, I mean, just put you right um, on the spot. You think this isn't yeah. a good movie. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a, I I think it's a flawed movie. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, it certainly wouldn't be in my top 10 Spike Lee movies probably, but, um, Karina, did you think this, what did you think? Did you think this was a good or, or did you think this movie works? How did you feel about it? I mean, I think I'll just reiterate that I think there is a good movie in here, but that there's kind of, for me, there's sort of too much padding around the good movie. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I I just kind of go back and forth because I do feel like on some level it is sort of inherently racist to tell Spike that he's doing too much because we don't talk about that with other filmmakers who, you know, might be making a two and a half hour 
film. Um, you know, I just it and it especially like going back and reading reviews of his movies, you know, dating back to school days, it just feels like um I'm trying to examine like my sort of unconscious biases yeah. about his work. Yeah, I mean I, I I have similar feelings. I've been rewatching, um, either rewatching or or uh watching for the first time a lot of Spike's films over the past uh past few weeks. And um, you know, I, I think think he's an incredible filmmaker i think that that there's you know i i was watching um a documentary on apple tv that they did about his about his work and uh it's amazing how like his vision was from the jump like his stuff is just unbelievable from the beginning um and it and it's we i guess the long and short of it is i do think that, that a lot of people have taken him for granted as a filmmaker for a long time um which is uh which is obviously very unfortunate um yeah i uh i i think this film has has its issues um but um i still think there's a lot of really positive really interesting stuff going on in it but um so uh we do uh we do a rating thing on our show karina where we rate the films that we just watched just like for- you do on um you must remember this <laughs> yeah just like that just yeah. like that uh, when you gave betty page like a 72 i mean come on <laughs> Oh, uh, so we, we rate the films from, from zero to 99, zero being the, the worst, 99 being the highest. And um, we, we try to rate them at different times. If you saw it in 99, uh, what you thought of the film um, before we, we did this podcast and, and after the podcast, just to sort of see if it's changed your opinion at all. Um, I, I'll go first just because, you know, I, I saw this film in 99. I saw it in the theater. Um, I remember seeing it and, and being not particularly blown away by it at the time. And I probably would have given it like a 68 or something like that at the time. Um, but I do think that uh, through reevaluation, watching it again and doing some reading and, and talking with you guys, I think I'm probably, I'm at like a 72 now. <laughs> um, uh, what are your thoughts on it, Karina? Well, I didn't see it in 99. Uh, yeah. I watched it for the first time yesterday. Okay. And I think I would probably give it like a 78. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about. I mean, that's where that's certainly close to where I landed on it. But uh, Kenny, do you have any thoughts? I gave it a seventy-eight too. <laughs> um, before watching, I gave it a seventy-eight, and I, I think I, I truly was in like the mid fifties until the last fifteen minutes, um, and it just kind of kicked me in the stomach in a really good way. Uh, after talking, I think I'm. I don't think I'm any higher. I don't think I'm any lower. I think like. I th- I think it's a seventy eight. I think this kind. I, I I think the only thing I would say about it um, in reevaluation is uh, I'd like to go and reevaluate it again. I'd like to watch it one more time um, after this discussion and see uh, now that you know Karina's brought so many things to light and we've had discussions about it. See if that's changed. And I haven't really said that about any other movies, but. Um, yeah, the first two hours are a solid fifty-five, and then it really kicks ass for me. So, yeah, I, 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 I will say this: I, I do agree with you to uh, to a certain degree, Kenny. That that is a film that I do think I would go back and watch. Uh, for the first hour, I would not have said that, and now, in hindsight, talking with obviously talking with you, Karina and 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 Kenny about the the stuff that's going on in it it has it, it certainly has kind of built up its esteem a little bit more so I, I certainly would like to to watch it again but um so so next week we have um Griffin Newman coming on to talk about 
Muppets from Space. So yeah. I have to ask you, Karina, do you have thoughts on the Muppets? I, I like the Muppets. I have not seen Muppets from Space. Don't bother. <laughs> wow, yeah, no, spoiler I, alert. Don't bother. But, but, but I'll well, say this. I, I, we're, we're not cheerleaders for 99. We give you the straight scoop. Yeah. You know? Uh, but if you, love, <laughs> if you love the Muppets, don't watch Muppets from Space. <laughs> You'll love this episode. Yeah. Do you? I, I, the reason I ask Karina is because it does feel like your your classic Muppet movies, like the Muppet movie or Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, I've rewatched or watched them for the first time over the past couple of weeks, and I'm really taken with how classic Hollywood they are. Um, mm. There's the, there's something really beautiful about um, even just sort of the the classic Hollywood movie musical, but also just this. Um, I don't know this 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 joy that they're able to to convey this sort of um they're just really really beautiful movies and I, I just sort of wondered if you had thoughts on on those early ones anyway. I haven't watched one in so long. Okay. I, I don't really have any Sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. I, I I'll just say this. I think you would like the early Muppet movies. <laughs> they're really really beautiful films. Yeah, I just I haven't seen them since you know probably in twenty years. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I had neither, and uh, I was, I was quite frankly, really blown away by them. So um, I, I, I was just uh, curious on that. Well, um, Karina, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on to talk about um, talk about Summer of Sam with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it. You are the podcast like it. 1999. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.